This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw-Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And do you want to know what I saw on the Facebook page the other day, Eric Shaw-Quinn? And if I, and if I don't? And if you don't, <laughs> you lose your spot on this podcast. I will replace you with AI, a robot, Eric, who says only what I want him to and agrees <laughs> with everything I say and has no controversial opinions. You just said, do you want to know? And I was like, oh, I never thought about it, but that's actually a question. Um, no. Uh, yeah, sure. What the hell, Christopher? What, what was on, a, no, what was on Facebook? On. Uh, we, I think somebody asked us if we're going to get new fake advertisements. You know, we have advertisements in our podcast that basically direct people to our website, thedinnerpartyshow.com, and our oh, books. Right. But we make jokes about alienating advertisers, and we have little, like a napkin that counts your calories. So somebody asked if we're going to swap those out and maybe have different fake products we make fun of during those spots. So apparently not the answer is no we're not going to do that i don't know i hadn't really thought about it i kind of dream of us one day having somebody pay us to do this i you know there's that always that but you know we'll burn that bridge when we come to it (laughs) exactly in the meantime we want to be as free as possible for all of our wonderful listeners who we call our party people i'm going to say this this is quite a true crime TV club we have queued up for us ourselves this week, and I don't know. I think we should maybe get into it as fast as possible because it is not only a murder mystery of sorts, it is also a history lesson. It's kind of epic and really yeah. topical, I thought. I just really, you know, like American colonialism is already kind of a fraught topic, if you mm-hmm. will. Colonialism in general is a pretty fraught I mean, I know there is a historical nature to, you know, other times and whatever, but my God, this was, yeah, yeah, this is quite the story. It is epic and murder is, I I hate to say it, kind of the least of it. It is the least of it. Um, If you're new to us here at True Crime TV Club, which is a special series that we do here on Christopher and Eric, you are not remotely required or obligated or should feel you have to. How many different ways can I say that? Watch the episode we're going to be discussing today. Uh, I stated earlier at a previous time. All right. Our job is to serve it up for you in enough detail that you will feel as if you've watched it. And we're going to do our best to do that today, since this is way above the salacious trash we usually cover on Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club. Well, and I like that we're, you know, like last month with um, Rewind, I, I like that we're also including uh, some True Crime TV that's maybe a little more um, significant, uh, sub- yes. substantive, let's go with yes. that. It's all murders so- are significant, even if the reporting of them is craptacular. Exactly. 
So on the streaming platform of your choice, this will appear as its own movie, even though it is part of a PBS series called American Experience. It is called The Island Murder. So if you're searching for it, look for American Experience colon The Island Murder. And um, it is an hour long, but it is, I believe, commercial free or designed to be commercial free. So it's very densely packed and we will get through it in as much detail as we possibly can. Yeah, American um, Experience is a, re is a PBS show. So yeah, I think it's a, I don't know that there would be a non-commercial free version of it. Yeah, and they they typically focus in great detail on some sort of chapter in history by way of a single event. I remember I watched one about the first major forest fire in Idaho that really gave birth to the National Forest Service around the turn of the century in the time of Theodore Roosevelt. It was a fascinating special. And I think it, they're the ones who did one of the most fact-based recountings of the riots at Stonewall that I've ever seen. There's so much. Everybody wants to be the one who threw the brick. And the I think it was them who did the, uh, the special that kind of said, really, there was no windows to throw a brick through because there was plywood all over across the front of the, because you didn't have windows in gay bars in those days. So that's the claim to have thrown the brick. Was sort of, it, was, it was kind of a debunking of a lot of myths that have grown up around everybody being the one and every mm -hmm. group being the one. And it was kind of a group effort and much more inclusive than most people want to make it. And not about excluding particular groups of people as not really having had anything to do with it. It was a good special, and I believe that was also American experience. So, you know, the creditable uh, television program. Absolutely. There is a word that I feel you need to know before we begin today's discussion. And the word is not, in, to my eye at least, pronounced how it is spelled. It is spelled H-A-O-L-E-S, and it is pronounced Howley's. And it is a word that native Hawaiians adopted for foreigners, specifically the tides of oppressive white people who streamed into their country uh, in an act of colonization. Is it colonization. foreigners or is it just white people? I honestly don't know. That is a very good question. I, because there were a lot of immigrants to Hawaii. There are huge populations, as they pointed out, of Japanese and Chinese. Um, and I don't know if they're Howleys or not. I did not have that impression. I thought it was just... yeah crazy white people. We certainly do plenty of howling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm going to give a, I'm, the special offers up some context on what was going on in Hawaii at the time, what it was like before it dives into the specifics of the case that's going to be the epicenter of this episode. So I'm going to give us some of that and Eric, jump in if you think I'm leaving anything out. But uh, in 1931... Um, I was about to say something really stupid. I was going to say in 1931, Hawaii was 2,000 miles from the California coast. It's still 2,000 miles from the California <laughs> and coast. And has been for quite some time, longer than that even, um, maybe thousands of years. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, it is run by white people or Howleys, as we believe the natives call them. Um, it is frequented by wealthy American tourists who typically arrive via cruise ship. There's a large population of local Hawaiians who work as beach boys and are there to help wealthy white tourists frolic. Um, most of the Hawaiian working class keep to their own neighborhoods where there's little to do beyond pool halls and football, games of football organized in the streets or in parks. 
Um, the major industry in Hawaii is a dull pineapple cannery, which offers some job opportunities to the local population, or local Hawaiians can also work on the docks or with the police and parks departments. Many of the white men who are flooding into Hawaii in this time are there for uh, military reasons. They're actually in the military, and they're Southern which means, this is 1931 again, they have very specific attitudes about how white people and dark-skinned people should be intermingling, which are not reflected in the actual laws or government of Hawaii. So that's a little bit of context on what's going on in the island state at this time. It was time. kind of like a microcosm reflection of what was going on in the rest of the country at that time in uh, that whole fraught issue of racism and um, racial discrimination in terms of accommodation and work and housing and pretty much everything. And the, the Hawaii just sort of seemed to have been, as they were depicting it, it seemed to have been a concentrated um, kind of example of that because the military was very much in charge and it was very much reflective of the attitude of the commander um, of the military on the island at that time. They had a government, and they had a local governor, also a Howley, um, mm -hmm. after overthrowing the, the Hawaiian government um, itself, or I'm sure Christopher will touch on the reasoning behind that as we look back further into the history of the island. But yeah, that was sort of my impression. It was like, it seemed very tense, and it seemed very, like, beyond segregated in terms of opportunity and, and accommodation. But was it legally segregated? That was something I couldn't, because the discontent of the Southern white people in the military seemed to reflect that they didn't have specific segregation laws in place the way they did specifically in the American South at the time. Well, I'm not sure when separate but equal actually started, but I think mm -hmm. this is before that. So it may right. have been typical, but I don't know that it was. I don't know that that was a law until mm -hmm. it may have been custom but i don't think it was a law until the separate but equal thing i could be wrong about that but i i don't think so that seems to me to have been its own horrible idea mm -hmm. so speaking of horrible ideas we'd like to introduce you to the marriage between a kentucky-born annapolis oh. graduate named thomas massey and his 20-year-old wife thalia it's September 12th, 1931, and Thomas and Thalia are partying with other Navy families at a Honolulu night spot <coughs> called the Alawi Inn. And we just want to warn you that we will be two white guys struggling with Hawaiian and Asian pronunciations for most of this, and we are going to do our best, and we apologize if we uh, make any I'm not even going to struggle. I'm not even going to try. Like, Christopher can do like, the struggling here. I'm, I'm signing off. Like I, White guy alert. Yeah. White guy alert. Yes. Um, so they're at the Alawi Inn, they're partying, they're drinking, Thomas wants to leave. Uh, no, th excuse me, Thomas insisted they attend this event and Thalia didn't want to be there because she thinks she's a kind of upper crust lady and she's from a very upper crust family back in the States on the mainland and she doesn't want to be mixing with this down low Navy crowd. Thomas and Thalia had a habit of fighting at parties. She would often throw things and storm off. And it was pretty clear to those who knew them well that he wanted a divorce. She didn't. So he put her on probation 
as it's put to us by one of the narrators. And we should say here that unlike last week when we covered a paranormal show where the experts had giant air quotes around them, we have some pretty heavy hitters narrating this or interview subjects. We've got journalists and writers and local historians. So and a lot of the information. people were actually present for this. Yeah. Like, it was pretty remarkable. It was history being told by participants. It was, yeah. I, I, was I was quite impressed. Yeah. So at this sort of night spot, Thalia is wandering from room to room, and it sounds like she's insulting most of the people who cross her path. She seems to be a pretty imbalanced human being in general, and on top of that, she's drinking very heavily. Uh, she, uh, One of the naval officers just flat out tells her he doesn't want her there, and she slaps him. Charming. Always a big head at parties. So she decides she's going to leave, and she doesn't care whether her husband is going to go with her or not. She begins to walk home, and this path takes her through a very rough neighborhood. And around this time, two witnesses will later say they saw her being followed by a white man. Meanwhile, back at the night spot, Thomas has barely noticed that his wife is even gone. Around 1 a.m., it starts to sink in that he's now alone at this party, and he makes a phone call to the house to see if she's there. Uh, she's not. By 2 a.m., Two hours after she stormed out of the club, Tommy is finally able to get her on the phone, and she is hysterical. She says that she was badly assaulted, but she can barely get the words out. Over her objections, Thomas phones the police. The first patrolman arrives at their home, and he finds Thalia drunk and badly beaten. And it is then that she begins to tell a story that will shape all of the horrors to come. Dahlia says after she left the club, she was hauled into a car, driven down the street she was walking on and into a more rural and isolated area, dragged into the brush, and raped by four or five men. In this moment, as she's giving this account, she says it was too dark and she wouldn't be able to recognize the men or even describe them. She also says that she's unable to describe the car that they threw her in, but that the only thing she remembers about it is that it had a flapping top. Those are the exact words that's used to describe it. And as a historical note, I think maybe a little earlier than this segment, maybe right in the sort of opening kind of sequence, it occurs to me that uh, I, I guess a, a Hawaiian historian reports that prior to this event, there had never been a report of a rape or an attack on a white woman by a native Hawaiian, mm -hmm. ever. It had never happened before. So the claims as they develop are historical in their nature because it just wasn't that kind of environment. It was mm -hmm. apparently a pretty peaceable kingdom. Maybe a contentious one, but a fairly peaceable one. Right. Around this same time that Thalia is giving this account, this not around the same time, this same night, practically the same hour, another police report reaches the station. A Howley man and his Hawaiian wife have had a near collision with a carload of young men who they identify as being of Hawaiian Asian ancestry. In the course of this argument, they claim one of the men slapped the woman before they drove off. They got the license plate number for their car, and they report that to the police. The chief of detectives, John McIntosh, decides these must be the same men who assaulted Thalia. 
So they because round that's how them detective up. works. Right. Coincidences are always the way forward. So they round up uh, these men and bring them into the station. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. So the chief of detectives for the Hawaiian police, who is a white man named John McIntosh, brings in the five suspects from the near collision that came in via another police report, the night of Thalia's account. And those suspects are Horace Ita, who was the driver of the car, David Takai, Henry Chang, Ben Aquello, and Joseph Kalawi. Um, forgive me if I'm mangling the pronunciation of that. Suddenly, Thalia, who earlier said she could not describe the car that she was abducted in, miraculously, right? Miraculously remembers the license plate number of the car that she couldn't even say the color of a moment before. And it just so happens it is Horace Ita's license plate. Never mind that the car has no flapping top, which was the only description she gave of the car previously. At this moment, word of the story releaks out to the Admiral of the Navy or the local naval district, which I think was the 14th Naval District. And this Admiral, guy is a solid gold jerk. Admiral this, is, this man is the worst. Yates Sterling. He believes Thalia completely. He says, quote, we should string those men up on trees. Uh, the story reaches the newspapers. Initially, they don't name Thalia, but she's characterized as a white woman of culture and refinement and not a mentally imbalanced alcoholic who was walking around to nightclubs starting fights with people and slapping them the night that this whole incident took place. The suspects, even though they've not been found remotely guilty of anything, are described as, quote, fiends. The patrolman at the Hawaiian Police Department, and this is where, this is why I asked that earlier question about what was the nature of the actual legal racial segregation in Hawaii at the time. Because it seems the patrolmen are a mix of white men and Hawaiian men. And they start pointing out to the chief of detective, Thalia's sudden memory retrieval seems very suspicious. Also, we got this report that people saw her being followed by a Howley man while she was walking home. Um, oh, and, and by the was, way... Uh, there was yeah. reports that they were somewhere else. They were not nowhere near the scene of the crime. There was actually alibis for the men who were being accused. There was also a report that a drunken white Navy lieutenant was found wandering a few blocks from Thalia's home as she was making her first report. So basically, 
what proceeds, and we know this now in the retrospect of history, the light of history, is that it was a total frame job that was happening on these five men. That the five men did have criminal records, but for petty stuff, they were drunk the night that they were brought in. There was a fight with the couple who initially made the report about the near collision. Okay, but there's nothing to indicate that these guys were guilty of this crime, as this heinous crime, as Thalia described it. Um the, the investigation is handled in possibly the worst way possible. There are fake lineups in which they tell Thalia who she's supposed to identify. They go to And try there's to re- nobody but them in the lineup. Right. They go to try to um, retrieve tire marks from the scene of where Thalia says the attack happened. And the process by which they do it obliterates any evidence that might have been there. They don't, you know, they run over possible tire marks in an attempt to find the tire marks. It's just a sham. A lot of the detectives in the department were Hawaiian, as we said, and they were pissed. And so they began leaking info critical of the investigation to the local newspapers and to the defense attorneys for the five suspects. Enter the villainess of the piece, as we shall call her. Oh, my God. The most horrible person. Surprisingly, although I will say that Admiral Yates, whatever, was I just... Everything he said was prejudicial and inflammatory and it was about honor for him and how could you and he, you know, this is a, the, the, the result of how liberal we're being on this island. These are the kinds of problems that you have when you allow people who actually are from the place to have any sort of uh, authority or position in the place that you've taken from them. It just, mm-hmm. just a dreadful man. And with a long history prior to this of, of being pretty prejudicial in his um, demeanor and, uh, and efforts in his a job. proud white supremacist is how he is described by those who read his memoirs, that his memoirs suggest he is a proud white supremacist. Uh, there is some attempt to contextualize his views from a military strategic standpoint, which is that there was a military belief that Japan was even then seeking position in the Pacific and that it was their obligation in the Navy to, they saw the local population because there were so many Japanese among the, the local population or the population that had migrated there for war. Work, they saw them as an extension of this foreign power that was trying to intrude onto what was then an American state, and that somehow, in his mind, justified his ra- his rank white supremacy and tampering with the due process of law. And two but of Grace- the men that they were accusing were, in fact, Japanese. They're not Americans yet, but Japanese immigrants to Hawaii, Japanese Hawaiian immigrants, and one of them was a Chinese. Uh, immigrant, and two of them were native Hawaiian. Enter Grace Hubbard Bill Fortescue. Dun, dun, dun. Thalia's mother. She arrives from New York. She's a mother, she all right. Is, oh, my God. She is not about to see her daughter dragged through the mud. She came from a family of great wealth and power. Alexander Graham Bell was her uncle. Unfortunately, she thought she was marrying into wealth as well, but it turned out her husband squandered a reasonable inheritance and then refused to work, which was quite a combo. And so all she had at this point in history was her reputation, and she was teaching bridge to her friends to raise money. Which I just, that's like, okay. <laughs> I, I don't know how that would be a living, but sure. 
Maybe she was just extorting money from her friends. She seemed pretty dreadful. Absolutely. And but she presents as if she is the heiress to be, the Bell Telephone fortune, which is and you know, she kind of was. Yeah. Around this time, somebody discovers that earlier that summer, prior to Thalia's made-up story of rape, uh, Thalia poured out her thoughts to a psychologist from the local university who was conducting a study of sex and marriage. And And I thought this was an interesting, given in this moment in time, I thought this was an interesting aspect of this story because Mm -hmm. we have recently in our history been dealing with the believe the you know, believe the survivor, believe the person who's reporting. Like it is a really, like you can see part of what people are being subjected to here from our own recent history of like, you don't want to disbelieve somebody who is saying they have been assaulted, but you also want for there to be the due process of law for those people who are being accused of the crime. I I just, I found that, that it was there was never a moment's hesitation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. No. Right. In and around this particular ac- accusation, but there was also never um, due process of law. It was a very, it, it was a very fraught kind of situation. But the people who were rushing to believe Thalia had an agenda that didn't necessarily have to do with honoring the victims of sexual assault, right? There was the mother who was there to save her own reputation. There well, was the admiral, the Navy honestly, admiral who... That was ever that was the only motivation that anybody had was about honoring um, uh, Thalia. So the... the, the but... But the, but like one of the things that they said was that the forensic examination of Thalia herself did not necessarily indicate that she had been raped. Well, at and all, that's physically. right. Exactly. And that's what continues to happen again and again is that. But somebody the beat de- the shit out of her. The details of her own story. Did they, though? That's what she's drunk and disheveled. But was she actually beaten? That's what they said. Split lip, busted jaw, okay. black eye. Like she was, she had clearly been beaten. Like if the guy that she slapped at the party followed her out, out of the party and beat the crap out of her, maybe even had sex with her. I don't know. But like beat the crap out of her. Like if that was the guy who was following her and was the drunk that was in the neighborhood, that could be a different story. But because they didn't pursue that, they only went with whatever the victim told them. Because it was about the, but it was, it was the extreme other end of the thing that we're dealing with now, you mm-hmm. know, believe the victim, but the comb- balancing that with due process, there is no due process here. We only are taking the victim's word for whatever she says. It's the, um, Emmett Till story. It's the, you know, like the victim says whatever, and we prosecute based on that without any sort of due process. It It's a really, it seemed really fraught to me and and a part of the topicality of mm-hmm. of this particular episode at this particular moment in time because the me too uh movement has brought this this question to the forefront yes you want to believe people who say that you know who are saying that they have been hurt and assaulted but yes you also want to have due process and not do the kinds of things that were done in the case of Emmett Till or in this particular case or in those kinds of, you know, the, well, she pointed at the, this person. And so let's lynch them, you know, 
whether it is literally or figuratively. And my, I would love to know if she had pointed at the white officer who might, that she had the tussle with, if that had been her initial story, if any of the white people would have been so eager to believe her because her story fell right into a racial narrative that was about other people's agendas about maintaining control on that island. Absolutely. It, you it know? dovetailed right into the whole honor notion of protecting her you know, Snow White sensibilities and whatever, literally Mm -hmm. and figuratively. Anyway, I just, I thought that was worth mentioning because it really, it really struck me as we, as they were unfolding the story of the, like, well, we want to believe the victim, but, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, uh, so she fills out the survey, which I think is going to become more important later, but we're, we're, we're running up to the initial trial here, and it was revealed that Thalia poured out her thoughts on her, um, on her marriage to a psychologist who was conducting a local uh, study at the local university about oh, sex and marriage. Disturbing. And the psychologist, again, because we're in 1931, contacts her husband and says that her treatment is beyond my competence and she needs serious psychiatric help. Can you imagine that happening today? A psychiatrist contacting someone's spouse? Oh my God. Get this this girl some heavy drugs and uh, some sensitive care. She was apparently really a mess. So what's also becoming clear as the trial begins is that Thalia is reveling in being the center of attention. Um, she likes being the star of this elaborate drama. Um, she has apparently told a lie about having been impregnated by her assailants. That's not true. It's not borne out by medical facts. <laughs> and it just never comes up again. Yeah. Witnesses, as you mentioned earlier, Eric, say that they saw the suspects miles from the alleged site of the attack at the exact time of the attack. All of this conclusion, all of this confusion, excuse me, I meant to say, uh, results in a jury that cannot agree on a verdict. The judge declares a mistrial. The defendants are set free. And Admiral Sterling loses his Navy shit. I, and is a d- choir director of a an enormous and growing chorus of fairly high-placed, um, important and men in authority men being the key word, uh, who are joining him in this, in his moral indignation and outrage over the fact that there is absolutely no evidence that these men did this. Mm-hmm. And we're then treated to a crash course in what Admiral Sterling's sort of geopolitical concerns are here. And I use the term concerns with giant air quotes about it. There are 370,000 people living in Hawaii. Only 20% of them are white. More than half of those are descended from the thousands of Asians the Haole elite have imported for cheap labor. The Japanese population alone was 150,000 and growing, and this freaked the Navy the hell out because they were already afraid of an expansionist Japan. They thought that was a threat to to U.S. interests in the region, and maintaining control of Hawaii was the key to maintaining control of the entire region, and this was the lens through which Sterling was viewing this entire incident preserving the so-called, quote, prestige of whites in Hawaii was a matter of national security. So the special then takes us back into the colonial history of Hawaii, where it's revealed that Hawaii at this time in 1931 still has a royal family, but it seems a bit of ornamentation. The Hawaiian princess Abigail, and I am not going to be able to pronounce her last name, so I'm not going to even try. She asked the entire community to put its face in due process. 
a little concept we were talking about just a moment ago. Right. So, in a nutshell, the colonial history of Hawaii is this, and it goes the way it went in so many other uh, areas of the world. In the it's 1820s, all colonial history. whites arrived intent on Christianizing Aboriginal Hawaiians. They used this process as a means of introducing the concept of private land ownership. As, a way, as part of introducing this concept, they take all of the best land for themselves. They convert it to sugar farming in return for the rights to import sugar to the United States without tariffs. The United States gives them a military base. In 1893, Sanford Dole, Dole should be a name that's familiar to most of us. I don't know if it's America and beyond. Dole Pineapple is kind of a brand name. They overthrow the Hawaiian queen at the time. They destroy the monarchy. They establish a new republic. And five years later, they convince Congress to annex the Hawaiian Islands, making them a U.S. territory. And in 1898, the flag of the Hawaiian nation comes down forever i'm christopher rice and i'm eric shaw quinn and eric and i aren't just podcasters bitches that's right we're also authors and you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold at thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. <laughs> Okay, so going back to 1931, after we're given a lesson in, in Hawaii's colonial history, a group of sailors abduct Horacita, who was the suspected driver of the car. Uh, they try to force a confession out of him by whipping him with belt buckles. Um, he doesn't confess. He, confuse, he continues to say, we didn't have anything to do with this. We're innocent. Admiral Sterling says publicly, I'm surprised Horus came off with nothing worse than a severe beating. Which is really great for the authority figure in the islands to be saying. He goes on to make a series of false charges in an official report to Congress. He asserts that non-white jurors on the island are refusing to convict their own. He says gangsters are running rampant in Honolulu, which is not true. He says sex crimes routinely go unpunished. The mixed-race Hawaiian legislature lacks proper control. White women live under a constant threat. These are all lies, as you pointed he says out there earlier. There were 41 rapes. Now, we've earlier been told that it's never happened before. Mm -hmm. that, that's never happened before. But 41 of these, uh, I guess, white women have been raped in the islands. Complete lie. And right. then this report goes out to the news press um, and William Randolph Hearst, the charming William Randolph Hearst and his AP. And our UP, I guess he was UP. And mm -hmm. out to the world it goes. And it's really fucking with the the business model for the Howley elite in Hawaii. Like, it's really screwing things up. And Nobody so, wants to come there to, to have their vacation. Uh, it's really, it's impacting the people with the money on the islands. And that's always bad for everyone. And it's being picked up in Congress by the same white Southerners who believe that there should be greater you know, and it's that mixed race Hawaiian legislature is what makes me think that there wasn't the type of segregation in Hawaii that was in most of the United yeah. States at the time. No. 
Uh, so their new strategy to avoid a second trial is to try to get one of the suspects to confess. So the, the police actually, or the prosecutor, they take Ben Aquello aside and tell him, if you turn state's evidence, we'll give you a free ride out of here and the reward that's currently being offered for information into the case. He refuses, again, like Horacita, who was beaten, he says, we didn't do this. Um, so by January 8th of 1932, Grace, Thalia's mother, has decided really the only way to save her daughter's reputation is going to be able to get a confession out of one of the men. The prosecutor's office has failed to do it. The men who abducted Horace Ida have failed to do it. So she devises a plan with help from Thomas and two sailors that they recruit, Albert Jones and Edward Lord, to stalk the defendants, figure out how to abduct one of them, and try to get a confession out of them. So they hang out outside the courthouse because the suspects are required to report in on a regular basis to a bail officer. And in front of the courthouse itself in broad daylight, they have forced Joseph into a rented limousine. They take him up to the home where Fortescue has been staying ever since the trial first began. They question him. They threaten him at gunpoint. And then, wouldn't you know it, one of them shoots Joseph and he bleeds to death. They make no effort to save him. They wrap him in a sheet. They put him in the same car in which they abducted him. And their plan is to drive him out to the blowhole on the cliff so they can throw his body off the cliff and into the ocean. The police, however, have figured out that there was just a kidnapping. And they are on the lookout for the car into which Joseph was forced. And Mrs. Fortescue, Grace, the lovely Grace, Thalia's mother, has decided to pull down the shades in the back of the car so that nobody can see the body that she has hiding wrapped in a sheet and back. This identifies oh the car to God. the police. They chase the car off the road. And in the words of our many narrators and interview subjects, Grace steps out of the back seat of the car as if she's entering a ballroom. She has no guilt or remorse. She feels totally justified for Joseph's murder. She refuses just, to answer questions. Go ahead. Yeah, they, they proceed as though, yeah, like there, there is no sense of like that they have killed a human being. It is a complete disregard for the, the, the victim as being a human. They, mm-hmm. it, they react as though maybe they, you know, had killed livestock or uh, somebody's pet. Yes. News of Ugh. the murder hits the mainland. It's the scandal of the century. Uh, as they say, they don't have to make the news accurate because nobody on the mainland knows much about Hawaii. So they can make up bogus statistics. They can and say they whatever do. they want. And they do. 41 rapes that never happened. A horrible simmering ra- pot of racial tensions, which is the not terrible really... report from the, the dishonest report from the, the admiral in charge. Uh, thousands of Hawaiians attend Joseph's funeral. His father says that his uh, his son insisted up until their last conversation that he didn't do this. He had nothing to do with it. He swore on the Bible and his son was Catholic and that meant something. None of the local Hawaiians expect justice. Grace, Thomas, and the two accomplices are remanded to Navy custody and held on the USS Alton, where Grace takes over the ship's captain's quarters with stewards at the ready. She's basically being kept in five-star accommodations for murdering someone. Uh, Russell Owen, a, a Pulitzer Prize-winning New York Times correspondent, is flown out. Oh, my God. This is the one. Mm-hmm. Interviews. And Grace openly tells him everything that happened and blithely assumes she can admit to the murder straight out and everything will be just fine. She refers to it as the murder. After the murder, they've felt much safer, she says. 
And uh, we're not going to use the exact words that she used. However, the reporter later says she said this. He did not include it in his initial article, but she said, I come from the South, and in the South, we have a way of dealing with blank, fill in a racial epithet for black people that is widely regarded as despicable by today's standards and possibly by those standards as well, the standards of 1931. I think by, you know, the well-informed and enlightened of the period, at least. So, Grace's powerful friends back in New York decide she needs one hell of a defense attorney, and they recruit Clarence Darrow, who is familiar with anyone who has ever been in a high school production of Inherit the Wind. That kind of broke my heart. He accepted the commission. He was broke. He'd lost all his money in the stock market crash, and he'd never been to Hawaii. So he took the job, but it kind of broke my heart because I had, I held him in higher esteem than for him to come and defend these horrible people but everybody is entitled to a good defense and there had been a great deal of money collected and he needed the money so for thirty thousand dollars which in 1931 must have been a huge amount of money Mm -hmm. um, he comes to hawaii to defend these murderers and if you don't know about what i was talking about with inherit the wind clarence darrow defended the right of a school teacher to teach evolution you know, which was the basis for that landmark play, which I did in high. Did you ever do it? I did. I was in it in high school. We, I somehow managed not to. I guess the bicentennial happened while I was in high school, so it precluded the inherit the wind moment. But yeah, the scopes, <laughs> the scopes monkey trials were a big uh, international sensation and a landmark um, mm-hmm. uh, in in the country. And and he was connected with a lot of sort of landmark legislation. Was he connected? Well. I, I don't want to get us off the topic, but we could do a whole podcast a very, about Clarence he was Darrow, right? The most famous, he was one of the most, if not the most famous lawyer of the time, and he came to defend these odious people. So he tries, uh, he tries to claim that Thomas shot Joseph in a fit of temporary insanity, but when he sees it's not working with the jury, he switches course and he does something which I don't know how this is legal, and maybe it's not anymore. He called it, or it was called jury nullification which is about asking the jury to basically consider their decision from beyond the law or above the law or an unwritten law, in this case, the right of a man to kill someone who has egregiously offended his wife. is, yeah. what, is that, this... seems, that seems really sort of, that seems like kind of basic 101. If, you've, if you can't prosecute the victim and you can't actually make a case for yourself, you say, send a message. Mm-hmm. You know, send a message to the world, convict these people and let them know that this kind of thing is not right. Maybe it's not specifically black letter law, but you want people to know that this mm-hmm. is the kind of I think it seems pretty spurious. But, you know, it is ultimately a subjective decision on the part of a jury, no matter what the outcome of a trial is. They're convinced a reasonable doubt is a subjective concept. So mm-hmm. I guess I can see how it's possible, although one questions how it's allowable. In any case, that was his strategy here mm-hmm. because there wasn't a shred of evidence to support um, that they were in any way guilty. And it was the woman had given an interview to the New York Times referring to what they did to this poor man as murder. Mm-hmm. So Darrow's case is ultimately, because of all of this, it's going to hinge on Thalia Massey's testimony and her ability to invoke the sympathy of the jury. Yeah, and she's very sympathetic. Exactly. So John Kelly, the prosecutor, not to be confused with Donald Trump's former chief of staff, 
um, gets a hold of that psychological test we mentioned earlier in which she described in excruciating detail her psychological issues, her problems with her marriage and her husband. He presents it to Thalia on the stand and she loses her shit, grabs the paper out of his hand and tears it up right there in the courtroom. She rushes from the stand and into Thomas's arms and uh, claims, you know, I've always loved you, Thomas. Don't let anyone say otherwise. Darrow later says he went limp because he had just watched his star witness crack under cross-examination. Darrow's final argument is broadcast live on radio. It was really, there were parallels to the OJ trial here yeah. in, in a sort of inverted way. It was um, really, it was really, it was an international sensation, this trial apparently, at the uh, time. He said, um, he urged the jury to ignore the law, as we just talked about, jury nullification, the right of a man to avenge his wife's honor. Kelly's closing argument, on the other hand, says if you don't convict, you're basically giving approval to lynchings, you know. And I imagine that kind right. of argument says right now it may be a group you're not a member of doing the lynchings, but the, the worm may turn. The jury believed they were under the threat of possible martial law and that people throughout Hawaii were preparing for widespread race rioting. And this really um, didn't affect their decision, but it shaped their decision-making process. It, it would determine the mood, if you will, of their deliberations. Because the jury, despite Clarence Darrow's best efforts, was made up of a reasonable cross-section of the local population. Absolutely. It was not an all-white jury. Mm-hmm. Their decision is a conviction for manslaughter with a mandatory sentence of 10 years. Across the country, all hell breaks loose. The Hearst newspapers call for a battleship to be sent into Honolulu Harbor to rescue the Masseys and their accomplices. Racist comments escalate, threat, death threats for the, everyone involved. Uh, the Navy organizes a boycott of any businesses that employs any of the jurors. The governor under intense global pressure, caves and reduces their sentences from 10 years to one hour. Which they spend in his office, possibly drinking champagne, but at the very least having tea and spending time with the governor. The Navy ships them out on the first available ship to California. The ranking admiral in San Francisco offers them their car and driver for as long as they're in town. And then, and this was the story I really wanted to hear. This is the, if you're going to have to make a movie about this, this is the movie. The territorial government of Hawaii hires the Pinkerton Agency. And if you don't know anything about the Pinkertons, they're mentioned in like every detective novel from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. They were like the first private detective agency. They bring them into Hawaii to conduct an investigation into Thalia's charges and the Pinkertons basically, which I don't think were like a bastion of progressive racial politics at no, the time. Not at all. There's a lot of the most of the stories I've heard about the Pinkertons are about them coming in to break strikes and bust heads and do kind of questionable things. So when they said the Pinkerton agency, I thought, uh oh, now what? They say it's impossible for those men to have committed the crime and highly unlikely the crime was ever committed in the first place. As for the Masseys, they were divorced within two years. Thomas remarried and in 1940, he collapsed into a manic depressive psychosis and was cashiered out of military service and missed World War II entirely, but he lived for another 40 years. Thalia began a long series of suicide attempts and in 1963, she succeeded. But... Grace Fortescue made some quick money writing her story about the experience and eventually 
inherited her fortune, lived out her life in Palm Beach, Florida, and didn't die until she was in her fucking 90s. She had a great life. She went on to have a great life after (sighs) spending an hour in the governor's office for murder. And yeah, they called it an honor killing in the Mm. papers. I just, that was like, wow. I just, I, it was really, I, you know, like colonialism is its own thing. And one assumes that it wasn't a smooth transition and Hawaii was an actual kingdom. So, that we took and annexed into the country. But I did not realize how bad Mm -hmm. until I saw this special. I had Mm -hmm. no idea that it was quite as inexcusable as all of this. And Grace, my God, what a nightmare. What an absolutely terrible person. But apparently never, ever entered her consciousness that she'd done anything wrong. That's the part of her that was the most astonishing to me. There was no sense that she even needed to cover it up. She Mm -hmm. didn't see it as she was so convinced of her privilege or her superiority or supremacy, if you will, Mm -hmm. that it never even occurred to her that she had done that. She had committed a crime. Do you think she believed her daughter? I think that she was more concerned about her reputation than she was with whether or not, her daughter was telling the truth because her daughter had made the claim. Whatever she did was about saving their reputation and not about proving her daughter's claim. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That was my impression of her because everything that she did or said was never once about whether or not it was, it was never about her daughter. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. her daughter killed herself and like, hmm, and was already a fucked up mess when she got there. Like, and this was her mom. Like, okay. I, I don't think it ever really occurred to Grace to could be concerned one way or the other. Mm-hmm. It was about, we have, our reputation must be upheld and this claim must be, you know, avenged, whether it's true or not, never seemed to have come into Grace's consciousness. What do you think really happened that night? I, you know, honest to God, I honestly think that what I said earlier was probably somewhere around the truth. Mm-hmm. She stormed out. She got into what she got into whatever with the uh, the other Navy guy. She slapped him. She stormed out. He followed her. Maybe there was something sexual happened between them. Maybe not. But he ended up beating the crap out of her. Um, she had to cover with her husband because she was already on probation for a walking out of the party and B um, being in the condition she was in. And so she made up the story and then the police fed her enough details, gave her the license plate number and et cetera to present those guys as the, the criminals. And then the rest, as they say is history. But I don't think that, anything like what she claimed happened, happened, but that's my surmise, you know, Mm -hmm. like it was the thing that I brought up earlier. I don't want to get into the business of not believing somebody who says they've been the victim of a sexual assault. But I also think 
that you have to have due process and you can't just, it can't just be the claim. You mm-hmm. know, I don't disbelieve that something happened. She was clearly assaulted and beaten. That much is true. That much mm-hmm. seems to be the truth. But who did it? There doesn't seem to have been much proof of that. And the accusation then became the actual crime. And right. that's that's a horrible situation because this woman was assaulted. And, and she know? was but she was also coached. I mean, she was used. I don't want to say she was the victim given how long she proceeded in this ruse and, and the terrible cost it had for the native Hawaiian population. But she, but the her original story didn't include the details that were fed to her by the people who descended on right. her in the hours afterwards. And it's clear that the that's why I say the accusation is what became the crime. Well, and I think too, in, in terms of what you're talking about with the with the how it connects to the Me Too conversation and and we talked about this, you, I think you saw this exchange online, that believe all victims is evolving into listen to all victims. Because listen to all victims allows for the due process of law. We're going to hear you. We're going to hear your account. We're going to respect that something may have happened to you and you deserve to be heard. And there was the exchange between Rose McGowan and Alyssa Milano about the Tara Reid allegations against Joe Biden, where Rose McGowan was upset that Tara Reid wasn't believed. And Alyssa Milano responded on Twitter, I have heard you, basically, right, is what she said. I hear you. I hear you, which means I have listened to you and I am making a judgment based on what the actual criminal proceedings are in this matter. And what evidence, what evidence there actually is, you can't, like, the accusation cannot be the conviction itself. Right. That's the thing that can't be the case, even though we don't want to discount or discourage people from, from reporting the crime. This woman actually was assaulted in this story, and there should have been a crime report, although she herself, the story says, objected to calling in the police because I think she didn't want to get into the weeds of what happened either. I don't think she did. And, and I, yeah, and I think we always have to take into account in terms of the due process around these accusations that rapists rarely choose uh, places to commit their crimes in which there will be witnesses. And often it's one person's quote unquote word against another. And that has to be taken. But there are ways of investigating accounts, even when there weren't witnesses present, to verify. And and people are going about that task in a progressive way. There are, there are experts in how to interview rape victims that are, that are able to factor in the fact that their recollections are often not chronological and that you can use the events that, are, that can be anchored in time to put together the pieces of their narrative. But the fact of the matter here is that nothing supported the, the 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 stated facts of her account nothing nothing supported them and they were given and ultimately the crime here is the murder of this man yeah for which people were convicted and sentenced to one hour of tea drinking in yeah. the governor's office which yeah. is to me how that becomes the crime Absolutely. rather than anything that was uh, uh that was actually uh claimed by uh Thalia or anyone else, the the true crime was admitted, the murder of that poor man. I hope, anyway, there, I hope was, there is nothing at any academic institution or a statue named for Grace Fortescue, because if there is, it's probably going to come down sometime soon, and it should. Um, quite a chapter. Uh, quite a chapter. Okay, I just knocked my microphone. Um, 
We're going to get a little bit lighter next week on our next episode. We reached out to you on Facebook to find out how you were spending the holidays during this strange, strange, strange time we're living through, and we got some very interesting and enlightening responses. Uh, we'll be discussing those on our next episode. And as always, we're introducing something called the Wednesday question, which means a couple days after this episode posts, look for a question about it on well, Facebook. Not, actually, not just a couple of days, on Wednesday. <laughs> The Wednesday the, after. That's this why it's episode. called the Wednesday question. So absolutely. Right. We'll have survey questions about who knows what. So stay tuned. If you want to hear what the other party people have to say and comment on that yourself, feel free. And uh, also we will be looking to hear back from you so that we can, you know, have this uh, this communication happen in both directions. Absolutely. Is that everything, Christopher? I think Any that's everything. Thoughts? This was a this was a packed, packed episode. This was not just an analysis of a detailed analysis of a crime. It was also a really difficult history lesson, and I think we managed to get through it with uh, comprehensiveness. So, yay! Right. Sorry, us. Hawaii. Sorry, Hawaii. Uh, until next week. Actually, every minute until next week, and then after next week, until I'm no longer alive. I'm Christopher Rice. <laughs> Yes, it's kind. It's condition. It is not conditional. It is. It is. Uh, so, it is a permanent sort of state. Um, yes, and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, equally as permanently. And you've been listening to TDPS presents Christopher and Eric. Thank you. This is TDPS.